Yep. <laughs> okay, stop that. Stop. The Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since mm. Right Now oh. Addiction Recovery Network. Welcome to the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Podcast, the podcast of clean and sober, K-L-E-N and S-O-B-R, and SinceRightNow.com, with your hosts in recovery, Jeff, Matt, and Chris. Goal! There's a goal. There's a hockey goal. It's hockey season today, guys. From North Carolina. Yeah, it's basketball season, too. So we're just going to do, a, we're running a little bit late. Um, we're going to do a quick couple bits of housekeeping, as I call it. Mm-hmm. I like uh, that. One, I forgot to mention last episode, pocketudes.com, P-O-C-K-I-T-U-D-E-S.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrific little gratitude journals with little prompts to help you... Um, your daily gratitude. And your daily gratitude. Perfect. It helps focus it. It's just yep. a terrific little tool. Um, pocket size, pocketudes, cr- pocket gratitude. You get it. Um, <laughs> you can keep them close to your heart. And pocketudes.com. Or your loins. Use code SINCE right now to get 20% off through the end of this month, October. So in, through October 31st, 2017. Mm hmm. Um, the other thing is I like to shout out, uh, give, you know, shout out people that write to us and and talk about us. And I don't know if I'm going to get to everybody since the last episode. One, I want to thank Dan Maurer for a terrifically generous tip in the tip jar. Um, thanks Dan. Thank you, Mr. Maurer. Two, I want to say, uh, Aaron, a long time, first time. Uh, just wrote to say she absolutely loves our show. We're hilarious, and she always laughs out loud listening to us. Thanks, Aaron. Um, and we had raised a question about what we we weren't aware what the uh, if if BC was having an opioid crisis like our own down here south of the border. Um, and uh, basically, the answer is like fuck yeah. Oh <laughs> um, yeah. So. Uh, thanks for writing, Aaron. Sorry to hear that, uh, you know, North yeah. America, at least... Well, is... the cover of the RFT I brought over. Opioid <laughs> crisis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Apparently so tonight, You're soaking in it. South yeah. Park is uh, opioid addressing crisis. the opioid crisis <laughs> like, on South finally, Park, which finally. I have to watch that, because I haven't watched South Park in a long time. But it's a good show. Nor have I. Nor have I. Um, it's always funny. It's timely. Okay. Yeah. So let's, you know, we're running a little bit late and let's, let's just dial in Freddie. Yeah. We have a badass guest, like a genuine badass guest. Uh, okay. So Matt and I were kind of like a little scared. We're like, this guy might be too much of a badass. No, bro. come on. But we're a little pansy guys. Well, All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. uh, <laughs> pretty much. So, um, sorry, I'm stumped. Freddie Negretti. Yes. Um, is a world renowned, uh, tattoo artist, um, credited with with being an, an innovator, uh, uh, the originator of what's known as the black and gray uh, style of tattooing. And if you're not from uh, uh, into tats, if you're not familiar with, uh, you know, the art necessarily, um, 
you may very well be familiar with someone like Dave Navarro, guitarist for Jane's Addiction, who has said of Freddie, Freddie's work speaks to the people. He's not he is not a tattoo artist. He is an artist who is a master tattooer as well. Wow. You may also be familiar with Danny Trejo, also known as Machete. Yes. Um, yes. Who says of Freddie, Freddie was the man who took the Chicano, which Mexican-American, black and gray joint style straight out of the prisons and to the top of the tattoo world. To this day, Freddie's work never ceases to amaze me. And Freddie, um, as I'm sure we're going to get to find out in a bit, um, when it says he took it straight out of the prisons, it's because that's he was in the prisons, Folsom specifically, one of the uh, Folsom of... of Song yes, for most of us. Yes. Most of us don't know Most it from the blues. inside. We know it. Yeah. So, that's how um, we know it. You're right. Yeah. That uh, is. But let's let's call, dial in Freddie. <laughs> the music. Yeah. We, we know the song about it. Okay. Let's dial in Freddie. Is it in San Francisco? No, I think it's in California, though. Yeah, it's in California. Yeah. Okay. Alcatraz is in San Francisco. Alcatraz. We're they don't super mention it nerd. in the song. They don't. Just, so. just outside of this pretty town. No. No. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. We'll have to Let's figure that out. See for some reason. Know where it is. Yeah, he is. I'm but not. it's legendary. Like it's yeah. legendary. Well, the Rikers and Folsom are like yeah. the two shorthand for yeah. right. extreme hardcore, right? Shawshank grade yeah. shit. Right. Let's see what's going on here. You've had to do something. For some reason. Hmm. I just talked to Freddie in the pre-call. Okay. Right. For some reason. Please don't did make you, it Okay, angry. did you guys hear, just while we're killing time here, 60 Minutes interview. Did you guys watch that this week, 60 Minutes? No. It was a half the show was basically on the uh, organized conspiracy of the major drug companies to uh, start and keep the opioid crisis going in all, all these illegal ways. And basically the... Real illegality of it was, and it was all from these whistleblowers at the DEA who were like, the drug companies have paid our congressmen and our bosses off so much that we've been told to back off these cases where they're hmm. clearly flooding the market, all these pill factories, with millions of pills of opioids to get everyone hooked. And it just had been going on and going on and going on. And it really hasn't in any way stopped. No. Changed legislation so they can't be prosecuted. And it was just like when you, and it was literally, you know, in 60 minutes of serious when they have half the show. Right. 30 they minutes. They do 30 minutes of it right. to go through all the, all the problems and all the, um, but it was just, you got to step back and thought, and the drug companies still to, right now are still pouring $106 million in the last congressional round of lobbying congressmen to pass this law so they can't be prosecuted right. for doing this. Right. Oh my God! The permissiveness. No that wonder has allowed have... this to take root the <clears throat> totally. way it has. But just the it's naked staggering. greed of we are going to fuck. If we don't care how many people get addicted, no. as long as we're making. And I'm sure they make a lot of money. But it's like, oh my God! Well, you know what the fallout from that was uh-huh. is that the guy nominated to be yes. the drug czar was found to be in the pocket totally right. of big pharma. Yeah, and so I had to withdraw, which is just absurd. Yeah. That, yeah. that was the last thing. the The ending of the show was, and the congressman who introduced this bill, so the drug companies couldn't be prosecuted, is the same guy that just got nominated for the drug czar. Yeah, he had like one hand on the throne. Unbelievable. So close. Unbelievable. So he's not going to be the drug czar. 
No, he's like, not no, even going to be, be the drug Good. surf. Which, which yeah. is interesting that it's the first <laughs> guy, because basically everyone, and you know, we try not to get political, but the thing yeah. is, everyone Trump's nominated <laughs> and or has been uh, you know, approved yeah. for the position they're in. Yeah. It's basically opposite day. Yeah, you it know, is. It's somebody that's all for, right. you know, I hate the environment and so clear cutting is head yeah. of the EPA. Right, and right. Yeah, everybody is opposite day. Right. Freaky Friday. Yeah. In... The Trump's, position they're in, yeah. and this yeah. guy is the first guy that at least, as yeah. a DC, you say, you know what? Okay, We've I'm gone, not going to yeah. do that. His resume yeah. mentions the word right. drugs, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps he's qualified. And lo and behold, turns out he's the devil. But isn't that? You're right. It's the absolute. I, I keep thinking like someone's made a deal with the devil. Who? To it's just crazy. From well, Trump to everyone he's nominated, it's just yeah. the ultimate deal with the devil. Yeah. There we go. All right. Oh, here last. comes Freddie. Come Thank on, God. Freddy. We're just about to get into another political thing. We didn't want to. Hey, Freddie. Hello. Hello. Hey. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Excellent. So it's Chris, and I'm back with Jeff. Hi, Freddie. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Great. And Matt. Hey, Freddie. What's up, man? What's up, Matt? And uh, we were uh, just discussing before uh, you came on. We get, we. By way of introduction, I, I read uh, two terrific quotes, one from Dave Navarro and one from um, Danny Trejo, um, talking about you and your work. And uh, just to help any, anyone that's not familiar with the tattoo world that may be familiar with those guys and, ha- and the praise they heap on you is uh, phenomenal. Um, but welcome and thanks for joining us. Yeah, and, thanks for uh, having me. And uh, the other thing we were mentioning is, is you know, Danny Terho mentions that you took the uh, the the black and gray, I think he says uh, joint style out of the prisons. And I mentioned that that you literally took it out of the prisons because you yourself had uh, been in Folsom, uh, to which um, we were all sort of uh, nerds and and realized <laughs> the only thing we know about Folsom is is what Johnny Cash told us. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, what? What? Uh, where? Where should we? We start. I mean, what we're always interested in is what? What got you to to be a person in recovery? What? What was? What were the issues? What was the? You know, even if it's some stuff starts in childhood. Let's go there. Um, however far back you want to go and are comfortable going. Um, what got you uh, there? Well- let me give you a little bit of background on the sure. uh, tattoo thing. Okay, yeah. sure. Uh, you know, I joined a gang, you know, when I was uh, like 12 years old, a uh, Chicano gang in the mm-hmm. 70s. And, you know, uh, was uh, in a lot of trouble. I think uh, I spent most of my juvenile life in institutions. I think the longest from from when I went in, when I was 12, uh, until I was 22, the longest I wow. stayed out at one time would be two months. Wow! So I was quite. Is yeah, this in L.A., quite, Los Angeles, or San Francisco? Or? Yeah, Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Wow! And can I just it's, clarify? It's you, you said between 12 and 22. You you you. The longest you spent outside was two months. Yeah. At, wow. No, at one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, like wow. I would get out. But I wouldn't be out longer than two months, and and I'd be right back, you know. So, and uh, so I was pretty institutionalized. Um, So when when I was when I was nineteen, I went to California Youth Authority, and you know I got in uh, big trouble in there. Ended up in this lockup program, 
And in this lockup program, uh, the staff there, their way of dealing with us, because we were like hardcore, crazy, hopeless cases, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, and in fact, they would send us they, they would send us to prison for ninety day observ- observation. Uh, maybe hopefully, you know, like a scared straight type mm, of thing. Yeah. And then and then they sent us back to this program called Tamarack program. And it was a this lockup program and this the oldest building used in youth authority. It was uh like built in the late eighteen hundreds. It was like a big dungeon, you know? Mm-hmm. And and uh anyways, but the staff in there, you know, their thing was this, okay, as long as you guys don't kill each other We'll bring you pornography. We'll let you <laughs> tattoo. We won't search your rooms, you know? Yeah. So They just didn't want to deal only- with you guys. <laughs> right. They're like, all right, that's funny. So they they actually let us tat- tattoo in there. And uh, we, we got plans how to make a tattoo machine, you know, out of a, te- uh, a cassette motor, wow. you know, from Susanville Prison. And uh, for the next three years that I was in there, I tattooed every day. So when I got out of uh, Youth Authority, I set up shop in my in my apartment wow. and started tattooing people, you know, just out of my apartment doing prison style art. So you, um, you you made your first tattoo machine out of a tape recorder, tape player. Yeah. Wow. An eight track tape player. <laughs> but uh, meanwhile. There was a tattoo shop. These guys at this tattoo shop in East LA that, that, uh, you know, were attempting to do prison style tattoos out of a professional tattoo shop, and uh, connected with one of the guys over there, and uh, eventually Ed Hardy bought that shop because it was such a different look, um, and Ed Hardy, you know. He wanted to get the world to see tattooing as a form of art yeah. because it wasn't. And uh, he introduced Japanese style. And when he saw this black and gray, fine line realism, prison style being done in East L.A., he started promoting it. He got really into it. And the owner of the shop, Good Time Charlie, he turned Christian and uh, quit tattooing. And he sold the shop to Ed Hardy. Ed Hardy said, hey, we got to get this guy Freddie in here. He knows he knows the style and he knows these people, and uh, they hired me there at that shop, Good Time Charlie's, and Jack Rudy and I, uh, along with the help of Ed Hardy and others, um, you know, pioneered this new style of tattooing that's known today as black and gray realism. Wow! So that's my tattoo background. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing. And so, you know, so what what? Your art, your artistic background. I mean, this is something you developed in in the system, basically as a kid. It sounds like, yeah, right, right. Like you had right, talent. There must have whole... been talent, right? You must have been a, a really talented artist. Just, I mean, you, you are obviously, <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, I mean, well, yeah, as a kid, you must have been yeah, gifted. I, I, I was, I was born with art ability. Yeah, my father was a prison artist, and my uncle were, pre- my uncle. Uncles were also prison artists. And uh, so, you know, I had art ability and they recognized it when I was real young in school. Mm. And uh, and then, you know, as a gang member, you know, I started off, you know, doing hand poke tattoos with like a needle and thread, you mm. know. So, mm. so 
I was always the go-to guy for the spray painting graffiti on the walls, um, you know, doing the little hand poke pachuco crosses mm-hmm. and gang slogans, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then all the time that I did in jail, I used to draw constantly, you know, and so and I took to the whole Chicano arts mm-hmm. art style. There's a very specific uh, style of art that we related to, like Aztec imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mexican revolutionary stuff like Pancho Villa yeah. and, and the Chara girl, you know, clown girls, mm. you know, roses, religious things like Jesus and all that. So, so we had a very specific, uh, you know, art image that we loved, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, those are the images that are so popular today, you know, that are being done in Japan and Europe mm-hmm. and all over the world. It's tough. people love this Chicano art style, you know. Yeah. That's crazy. And and it's funny, kids. I don't know much about tattooing other than I worked on Sailor Jerry, the brand. And I remember we studied it just because of Norman, that guy who was the original Sailor Jerry, and then how that led to Ed Hardy and how that led to this. But this sounds like a whole a whole nother style brought in. But it's interesting how Ed Hardy was involved in all of that or, or that all these people kind of stuck together in this world of tattoo artistry. Yeah, that's correct. Because, you know, tattooing by and large at the time was a uh, kind of a carny thing you know the mm-hmm. the images were real real simple and uh and you know and real colorful mm-hmm. but there was only like three or four colors available at the time and you know so uh so and what ed hardy and what sailor jerry and then sailor jerry passed on to ed hardy were these great tattoo secrets and you know images and and styles from other places like Japan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, uh, Ed Hardy was an educated man, <clears throat> great artist. And uh, what, he, what he wanted to bring to tattooing was professionalism. He wanted the world to see that this is a form of art because it was an actual argument in the 70s. People would say, well, yeah, that's not art. Mm-hmm. You know, so. And you won't hear anybody say that today. No. Yeah, oh, I mean, hell no. You've seen it go from <laughs> from really like outsider kind of dangerous, you know, only the bad kids kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. To like, I mean, now it's like you know soccer moms, and you know, and <laughs> it, it's like you, you know that's that's true. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, when we when we were tattooing on Whitter Boulevard there, out of that tattoo shop in East LA, our clientele. Or Chicano gangsters, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and and a few others, you know, and they got the images, you know, that that they loved, and uh, uh, writing and things like that were really big because they wanted to say something about who they were, where they were from, mm-hmm. and the things that were important to them, and that's exactly what the whole world is doing today, you know. It's it's uh, so now you know I tattoo in Hollywood, right. and we have celebrities and. And hipsters and every every walk of life is coming in to get tattooed. Yeah, that's that's so, amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's a good time to be I, a tattoo artist. I saw the transformation. <laughs> I remember I was part of the you know the crew that was saying tattooing is an art form, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 doing everything to make it to promote it to uh, get people to see it as art and realize. Uh, the possibilities that could be done on skin, you know, mm-hmm. when you look at skin as the canvas. Mm-hmm. And so I've been fortunate to see this transformation. I remember 
you know, when I got out, I was covered with tattoos. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is uh, in uh, the late 70s when I finally got out and, and you know, started tattooing. But I would, like, go to Disneyland, you know, with, with like, a tank top on. Mm -hmm. And uh, and people would just stop and stare, and they would mm -hmm. be shocked. And I wouldn't see anyone else in the whole place with a tattoo. Mm -hmm. And the people would just, like, back off, you know. It's like, whoa, this guy must be crazy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you know what I noticed was that the little kids loved it. Like little kids would run up and say, "Mommy, look at the tattoo man," you yeah. know, and they'd be like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," you know. He just says what he wants. Yeah. I'm like, no, it's okay, it's okay, you know. And I kind of realized then, you know, we got a future here. You know, mm -hmm. if the kids love it, there's a future in it. That's right, man. That's right. And now you see <laughs> cops and lawyers, see people in suits and ties who are sleeved out. You know, it's like, it's really extends across every walk of life and it's amazing and it is a legitimate art form we were just looking at some of your work and the depth and the intricacy of it um it's unquestionable you know that's the proof right mm -hmm. there yeah. when you see it you can't refute that that is that is art um yeah, it's astonishing that i mean uh, there, there's there are a wide variety of styles obviously and and you know i can appreciate them all but just looking at your work it's astonishing you can do that on skin and it's just it's a it's gorgeous work i'm yeah. just looking at it again um oh thank you thank you very much um so so what about the drinking and drugs <laughs> okay, yeah, let's, now let's get on to the, to the other part you know so you know being from a gang and all that so when i first got in the gang you know of course we we got high but it was mostly like drinking yeah. uh i i remember the drugs that were being sold on the streets were like uh you know um Red Devils and Rainbows, you know, like that's second all and true and all, you okay. know. And, is that and, speed? Uh, speed and downers, kind speed of, downers. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, they. I don't remember any speed being around, but they had whites, <clears throat> white and whites or bennies or whatever they <clears throat> called them. So they were like uppers, and I tried all that stuff a little bit. I didn't like the second, you know, the the downers, because uh, you know I noticed that whenever you know I didn't want. I want to be stumbling all over the street and not have my wits about me, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, because uh, we had a big gang war going on. You never know when somebody would roll up on you. Hmm. So, and uh, but I do remember also that the older guys, you know, from the neighborhood, were all into heroin, you know, mm -hmm. and I was like really against the heroin because, you know, these guys once they get on heroin, they would uh, they would back up from any any of the gang activity, you know, mm -hmm. and they go so far as to fraternize with the enemy, you know, like to, to do get score drugs and right. things like that, you know? So, and are we talking the seventies or eighties? Yeah. Seventies. Okay. Yeah. So this is like in the seventies when I was running around the gang, but, uh, it wasn't until, you know, and so mo most of my, uh, you know, prison, you know, being prison experience and everything was, uh, based around my gang activity and uh, not so much on drugs. But when I did get, you know, once I found success, I was tattoo artist of the year. All of a sudden I was making money. I got me a little house and a car and I got married, you know. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after I got married and started my family that uh, I I decided I wanted to try some heroin, you know. Wow. Uh, I did try it one time when I was a teenager, the homeboy, the older homeboys had it, and they they had they gave it to all us youngsters, and all I did was throw up. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I wasn't into that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Right. But but for some reason, it seemed like once I got high, it kind of like enhanced my. I felt like that was that's the deception. I felt like it was enhancing my life, you know. Like it, you know, I had all these good things going for me, which I never had before, and you know, getting high on heroin just made it seem to feel even better, you know? Mm-hmm. Do, you so, remember, you know I, do you remember the day you decided to do this? Do you remember, like, things are going well, and, you, and you're like, oh, I'm going to try this. Uh, you know, I do remember, you know, it was because uh, we were going to, I remember uh, my wife and I were going to buy a house, and uh, her, her mother had a big, giant, like, seven-bedroom house, and she had all these daughters, and uh, and so we moved in the house with uh, her sisters and their husbands. So now all of a sudden, there's all these gangsters living in this house. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, uh, one of my homeboys who was uh, married to my wife's sister, you know, and our wives all worked, you know, in like business area in downtown L.A. And uh, and then I didn't work till the night. My brother-in-law, he didn't do nothing. But, you know, I remember he was like, hey, dude, let's, uh, let's get some, some stuff. I got a rig and everything. And I was like, uh, I remember being reluctant. I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it, you know. So we went and, we went and scored and we went in the bathroom. And uh, I remember that first time getting high. And I remember when I first realized that I was addicted, that I was yeah. that I had a Jones going. Yeah. So, Maybe it was like three weeks after or something like that, and my wife and I went to go, uh, went to go watch Alien. That this is when <laughs> Alien was in the theater. Yeah, <laughs> the first Alien. And, yeah, the very first Alien. It was like a this box office smash hit, you know. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so I'm sitting watching the movie, and all of a sudden I got this terrible cramp, and uh, and then I went. So I went to the bathroom and I almost passed out and I looked at my face and I was all white. And then I started dry heaving, you know, throwing up. And I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm strung out. And I just <laughs> wanted to get out of there and get, you know, and use, you know. Yeah. So and, you know, and that, you know, and I continue to use things got really bad. And, uh, you know, uh, it messed up my marriage and it messed up. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of things. But what happened was I, I became a born-again Christian for a minute there, you know. Um, <laughs> for a minute. I like that. Well, it was kind of a long minute, actually. So, you know, because, uh, the, you know, at the time there was this these, uh, like, fundamental Christian groups that uh, one of them was called Victory Outreach. And they were going right into the neighborhoods and converting gangster, hardcore gangsters, mm. offering a new life, a better life, to drug addicts and and gangsters, and you know, yeah. and and it was funny because so I'd be at work, and these guys that I knew from prison and stuff, these hardcore killers, were coming to the tattoo shop with a, with Bibles, hmm. telling me, "Hey, Freddie, God loves you," you know, and mm-hmm. He wants to change you, you know. And at the time, I lost my wife, things were going really bad. I didn't care about my work. I was strung out really bad. And uh, and I was adding PCP to my little thing. I started getting high on that, sure. and uh, and so you know, one day I went went to church with those guys, and 
and I got touched, you know? Yeah. And I became a, I became a, uh, a Christian. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, so what happened, you know, as soon as I became a Christian, you know, they told me, you know what, tattooing is a sin. This pastor told me that. Interesting. You can't be tattooing, you know, and serving God at the same time. You know, it's a sin. Wow. And, um, and I was like, whoa, you know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, to, the God part works. And you find this spiritual thing, and it makes you feel better, and you're, you probably have quit using it. And then the pastor comes along and says, and ruins the whole thing, <laughs> right? Exactly. It's so bizarre. And then, you know, so I quit tattooing, you know, and then I actually got my wife back. You know, the, you know, the conversion I made did good for me. I quit drugs. Yeah. I just cold turkeyed it, and I didn't get that sick. You know, I felt like God helped me with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went back with my wife. You know, and and so and I went ahead and I quit tattooing, you know, and that I remember uh, that didn't sit well with my tattoo peers, you know, like, yeah, we had this thing. We had this tattoo juggernaut rolling forward, you know, and Ed Hardy was. uh, He tried to convince me not to do it, but I felt like uh, in order to serve God, I, I had to quit tattooing. Wow. So this uh, pastor, this very same pastor, he tells me, okay, you know what? You're a talented artist and you know all these gangsters, you know, and you can help us with this outreach that we're doing. Everybody knows you and, you know, you're famous in these neighborhoods and uh, you're a great artist. He goes, I'm going to give you a full-time job uh, drawing for the church, Hmm. you know? So that was a relief, you know? I felt like, oh, I'm going to have a job, you know? And not only that, you know, uh, my trade in prison was, uh, was... was uh, printing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on on the offset printer, and he had an old offset printer that was broken down in his basement, and I went down there and fixed it and got it running. So now I was designing like material, you know, like, like outreach material yeah. and leaflets and stuff like that, and printing them up for him. So after a couple of months, you know, I was like, okay, well, he told me he was going to hire me full time, you know, but I haven't gotten paid or anything, <laughs> and. <laughs> he he and he didn't talk to me much, you know. So yeah. I told one of the deacons, "Hey, bro, you know, I really do. I gotta get paid because, you know, I, I'm I have a family, you know. Yeah. And the pastor said it was gonna be full time. So he made an appointment. And I went and talked to the pastor, and the pastor was like, "Oh yeah, okay. Uh, you know what? Um, we're gonna get you a CETA slot. Now, what a CETA slot was was government funded uh, government money that they put into poor neighborhoods like mm-hmm. in East LA." Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to community centers and churches so that the churches could hire, you know, uh, people, you know, so they could have money, you know mm-hmm, what I mean? Right, like, right. So, so like, and it was only for three months, you know, and, uh, it would be usually for cleaning up the neighborhood or doing whatever, you know, uh, projects the church or the community center had. So he was going to give me a seat of slot. So I'm like, well, that's not really full time and it's not much money. And, but I said, okay, okay. But then, you know, the neighborhood I lived in at my mother-in-law's house was out of the area. You know, it's a, it was a nice neighborhood. And, and, um, and so that CETA uh, program was only for poor neighborhoods. So he wanted me to lie about my address. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, you, you know, you tell me that tattooing's a sin. Yeah. And, and I don't see it anywhere. You know, and I quit tattooing. 
And now you're telling me to go ahead and lie. And yeah. on top of that, lie to the government. Yeah. And I know that's a sin because that's one of the Ten Commandments. Right. right. <laughs> Tattoos aren't in the commandments, man. Yeah. You know? I'm no genius over here, but I can read these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, so I had a falling out with him. And I, I you know, uh, he argued with me about it. And I said, you know, I can't. I just don't want to be a part of this, you know, that mm, yeah. that hypocrisy or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I was really upset about quitting my job and stuff. So, you know, I, I quit that church and then I felt like uh, I got the opportunity to go to a university myself. I felt, you know what, I don't want to hear what these people have to say about God and, you know, everybody you know, bombards you, the fundamentalists. They're like, oh, bro, you got to do this, you got to do that. Mm-hmm. And everybody's trying to be a preacher and evangelist. And so I went to, to, for the next six years, I went to Azusa Pacific University, and I got my degree in biblical literature. Wow. And not long after that, I, I backslid, you know. I just left the whole thing. Wow. Six, six years to get a degree in biblical literature. And were you yeah, tattooing yeah. at that time, or uh, were you just yeah, going to I university? Yeah, but I also got a master's. No, I... I was uh, doing sign painting and whatever I could with my art. Okay. Oh. And I got, you know, like, uh, you know, so I wasn't tattooing, but all the while I was keeping in touch with Ed Hardy and Jack Rudy, you know, and yeah. they always want to know how I was going along with, you know, with my life, you know. And uh, and are you clean this time, this whole time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, but anyways, uh, you know, I couldn't, I, I couldn't hold on. I also got a master's degree in apocalyptic literature. That's why wow. it, it took six years. Damn. But anyways, I, I couldn't hold on to that rigid, rigid religious yeah. structure. And um, and then, you know, I I felt the call and I felt like, you know what? Especially Jack told me, dude, you got to come back to tattooing, man. Forget about all that religious stuff. It's He goes, <laughs> you become a legend, yeah. you know? And... And uh, so it was already 10 years. So uh, I decided to go, uh, you know, back into tattooing. That's crazy. So, you know, and I'm sorry, I could, because my story is so long, you know, you could read it all in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, uh, yeah, I was going to mention that <laughs> it, you're giving us a lot, and I appreciate that. But um, I don't know that I did mention that the, at the upfront is, is uh, Freddie does have a book out, uh, Smile Now, Cry Later. Uh, gangs. What's the subhead? Help me. Uh, gun, guns, gun. gangs, and tattoos. My life in black and gray. Right. Nice. And uh, there's a link to that uh, on the site right now, and I'll add one to the show notes. But uh, yeah, check for you know, there's a lot of story there. It sounds like, and um, we're only going to scratch the surface tonight. But uh, so okay. So, so let me fast. Yeah. So let me fast forward it. Sure. A little bit. You know. So yeah. So I got back into tattooing, and. Uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, I ended up getting divorced and all that. Uh, and, you know, ha- having my own tattoo shop, you know, a lot of up and down stuff. But I was like a chipper, you know, like uh, I-, I like to use heroin, you know, okay. at, at uh, picnics, weddings, you know, family functions and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, that just sounds so funny, right? Yeah, but chippers, there are a lot of people who do it, you know, and not that, like social heroin users, but like occasion stuff, you yeah. know, like. Um, right. And, and you can function. I always think like heroin, you can't function. I guess you can. You'd be a functional heroin user. 
right? Well, you must be able to show up at a wedding for for dance. just a little while. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I chip. I would chip for like a year, and it would go from uh, family functions and weddings to like Sunday, you know? right? Uh, <laughs> then to Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, and then you know, a little thing on Wednesday, and uh, before you know, you were strung out again. So I would always end up strung out. Yeah, and then I would always use uh, the methadone program. Okay, um, you know, so I'd end up strung out on heroin. Then I'd go get on me- methadone maintenance, and you know, let let the government give me the heroin. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but so you know, <clears throat> so it's always up and down with that, and then. You know, in uh, in the '90s, you know, I was introduced to speed, you know, and speedball. So using speed more than you know, like heroin, and and uh, but it was still kind of periodic and stuff like that. But anyways, so I was a continual drug user, you know, and my life was up and down, and uh, but it wasn't until uh, 2004 when uh, my youngest son, you know. you know, I had divorced from my second marriage, and my youngest son was living with his mother in in Grover Beach, and uh, he wanted to come live with me. He was getting in trouble, and uh, she wanted him to be in juvenile hall, and I didn't want that because I thought he'd get worse. Mm. So I had a custody battle with her, and I got custody of him, and I I brought him to Hollywood, you know, to Los Angeles, to live with me and my older son, who was also a tattoo artist at the time. And um, and then he got murdered, you know, in in a in a gang thing. And then, but you know, the irony is that, you know, uh, he joined the same gang that I was from, and and um, he was in that area, and it was almost like he was kind of like following my footsteps, kind of thing, and 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 uh, and I was a, a bad father because I started using the speed more. So I wasn't really paying attention to him. I wasn't investing my time in him. I was letting mm-hmm. him run off with his cousin for cousins. You know, they all live in the old neighborhood, you know, mm-hmm. like everybody over there is all, all related. <laughs> I was hanging around with all my friends' kids, you yeah. know. And and um, you know, so uh after he passed away, I was devastated. And of course sure. anybody would be devastated when you lose when you lose your your child especially you know he was shot and he was shot in the head and and uh and it was just a a terrible terrible experience and uh but along with uh you know with him passing away came this tremendous amount of guilt you know because i felt guilty because i i brought him to los angeles Mm -hmm. from the safety where he was living in grover beach you know with his mother um I I wasn't an exam a good example. I let him, you know. I I wasn't I wasn't investing my time in him or trying to help him through these crucial years, you know, that he was going through. He was a freshman in high school, um, you know. So, and uh, at the very same time, I had a friend and a wealthy guy, construction guy, you know, like Seattle. He had a bunch of money, and he was telling me. Dude, I'm going to lift up your spirits. I'm going to come to uh, Los Angeles and uh, we're going to open a tattoo shop and you're going to start, you know, have your own shop and start your life all over again. 
when in reality he had something he was escaping from as well. He just wanted to get away from his world and plunge himself into uh, this drug abuse, you know? So he came and he got an apartment and, uh, and him and I became like, uh, uh, what were those, that movie of those two twin brother doctors. You ever see that movie? Oh yeah. The David Cronenberg movie. Oh, uh, (laughs) the gynecologist. Yeah, dead yeah, ringers. the gynecologist. Yeah, that, where they both end up just being these, you know, hopeless drug be, drug, and they both died, right? Yeah, yeah, dead ringers. And, yeah, yeah, that's the name of it. Yeah, like, but because I remember at the time, I I felt like those guys, me and him, were like those guys. <laughs> I just plunged myself in this insane abuse, you know. Yeah, yeah. and and because I, I, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I would just be crying my eyes out you know Mm. i was so hurt and so guilty i wanted to die you know but as soon as i took that first dose right i didn't care anymore Mm. i didn't give a shit and then i used this speed you know so all day long we would dose ourselves and then and he had an endless supply of money and drugs you know (laughs) so and then uh you know in the night uh i'd use the speed to go down I, I lived two blocks from the tattoo shop and I'd walk to the tattoo shop and, and tattoo, but I didn't even care about my work. Mm-hmm. I was just tattooing to get the money, you know? Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the tattoo world is expanding and, and enjoy, you know, uh, crossing new horizons, you yeah. know? And I was regressing just doing shitty tattoos cause I didn't care, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so at that very same time, right around that time, uh, I I started having problems with my health, you know, so I couldn't ble- breathe right, and and um, and so I went, I ended up going going to the hospital because it got so bad, you know, and I refused to go to the hospital, and uh, I tattooed this ambulance driver, and my son had called him, and they kind of came and forced forced me to go to the hospital. Mm. And your uh, son so called the ambulance that, driver to get tattooed because he knew you needed to go to the hospital. That's, <laughs> it, it was a guy that I tattooed. Yeah. Know, oh, that, okay. Before. Yeah. yeah. That, oh. Yeah. That, that that knew me. Yeah. And uh, he and he was a paramedic, and my son had his number. Wow. So, anyways, so when I went, it turned out that uh, they they labeled it as a uh, drug induced congestive heart failure. Wow. Drug induced so, congestive. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I haven't heard I, I that like one. I like the drug-induced part. You know, it's, it's yeah. like not only do you have heart failure, yeah. but it's drug-induced. You know, let's make it clear that it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. This doesn't just happen, man. This is on you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Shit. Exactly. And it's just from years and years and years of abuse. Exactly. Years and years and years of abuse. Wow. Uh, plus, uh, there may be a little bit. My mother had heart okay. uh, issues, so yeah. there may have been some hereditary stuff right. in mixed in there. Yeah, but you weren't helping, uh, you know. So all those years, I mean, I what I was like forty-eight or something by that time, and and just all those years of using, you know, if, if you don't end up in prison, if you don't end up, it's going to get you health-wise, One you way know. Or another, yeah. Right, right. It's it, going to get you, you know. So, so you know. So then. I tried. I tried to stop because they put me on all this medication and stuff, but I I just couldn't. Hmm. 
And uh, then I got arrested for, for possession. Of course, back then it was a felony. And I went on the Prop 36. And, you know... Uh, What's Prop 36? I failed. Yeah, uh, Prop 36 was uh, Proposition 36. What they did was uh, they made... You see, are, you guys are in California, right? No, we're in St. Louis. Oh, okay. So it it was uh, the Robert Downey Jr. law. He's the one that, that pushed it because he was a drug addict. Right. Got in county jail, and he went through all that stuff, and he felt like uh, jail just made people worse. Okay. And he thought that drug addicts should have a chance at some kind of uh, re- rehabilitation, sure. you know? Mm-hmm. So they passed that law that if you got arrested for possession, as long as it wasn't for, for sales, but personal use possession, which is a felony, if you would plead guilty to it, they would allow you to go into... Uh, an outpatient drug program. Oh, okay, gotcha. And which everybody fails, <laughs> and they give you three chances. Yeah. But they only gave me three. Cha- they only gave me two chances, so I failed the first time. Yeah. And then when I when I failed the second time, I remember I was at court, and there was like, well, you get three chances, so I'm going, well, I'm going to go get my third chance, you know. Yeah. And and uh, you know. At the time, I, I had all these piercings, and I'm tattooed, and I had long braids, you know. And, and the judge goes, you know what? I'm not going to let you use your son's death mm. as an excuse to get loaded. Hmm. She goes, I'm violent. I'm, oh, so the catch was you would plead guilty to the, to the drug charge, the felony drug charge. Mm. And they would let you go do the program. But if you failed, you would have to answer up to that guilty plea. Oh, shit. Yeah. Makes so sense, they right? had they don't have to prosecute you you're just doing the time you already pleaded guilty they yeah. can take you in at any time hmm. on that guilt, guilty plea and so she sent me to prison right there and i was like whoa wait a minute i drove over here you know <laughs> <laughs> i got my third clothes swing, in the laundry man. i'm not ready to go to jail here you know it's like can i have a stay right. she was no you gotta go right now so i went to prison and i did two years and uh uh Found myself tattooing again with the little homemade machine wow. for soup. <laughs> <laughs> that was that's your the, pay? Hot soup? That That's the currency in California prison. Wow. Is uh, top, top ramen. People yes. don't even eat them. You know, they just use them for money. Just pass them back. <laughs> and <laughs> and so, you know, I, I like me and uh, all, the, all the different homies, you know, we had boxes and boxes of soups <laughs> underneath our our beds you know it's just like what am i gonna do with all this soup yeah <laughs> i don't even eat but i don't I'm even rich. like top ramen yeah. i'm rich <laughs> with soup oh my god so anyways uh but you know at least uh there was a two-year break there and you know i was taking all the medication you know mm-hmm. for my the blood pressure and the congestive heart failure so i felt a little bit better and uh so when i got out though it was still just me same old me with the same old guilt, the mm-hmm. same old problem, the same. And I immediately started using again. Yeah, that's crazy. And mm. and uh, not long after, I started feeling my health really going again. Because now, I didn't have no insurance. I didn't have no doctor. I stopped taking the medication. And I was using speed and heroin Jesus. and drinking, you know. Yeah. And I was putting so much smoke in my lungs. Cause I smoked weed and I smoked speed. Sometimes I'd smoke heroin, you know, but but uh, I would usually, you know, like do a concoction like a speedball. Mm-hmm. 
and try to find a vein, you know, uh, but was that you your know, main? Just like, like I've like you would bang most stuff, just needles, um, or were you smoking to whatever? Well, because it was so hard to find a vein, it would take hours sometimes. Uh, you know, I would I would smoke it as well. But even after I did, you know, my concoction of heroin and speed, I would smoke speed all night long. You know, mm-hmm. in, in addition to it, and I smoked weed and I smoked cigarettes. You know. I was like a smoke machine. You know? <laughs> just like, woo, woo, just smoke oh, coming. Wow. I remember even at the time I was going, dude, all this smoke I'm putting in my lungs, <laughs> it's got to be doing some yeah. kind of damage. This here. can't be good. But right. <laughs> this can't be good. Right, yeah. right. Well, anyways, uh, then I, I felt myself getting like really sick again, you know, and uh, but I, I didn't want anybody to know about it, especially my son. Hmm. And, but... All of a sudden, I couldn't lay lay down. You know, uh, when you have that congestive heart failure, you know, you're not getting oxygen to your organs. You oh, know? Okay. So, so you can't breathe, and your body fills up with fluid, and and your liver starts failing, failing, and you know. So, I was, you know, I felt myself really getting sick, and then that clockwork, I got arrested again for mm-hmm. another possession, and uh, but this time I was on parole, you know, and. And so, you know, uh, after you do a, the low term, which was two years for for possession of heroin or speed, those are the dangerous drugs. Mm. The second time, it's four years, you know. And, you know, I had the parole violation to deal with. So, but when I went into the county jail, I, I think, you know, the fact that I was already sick again and the withdrawing, you know, because they don't give you nothing to help you, you mm-hmm. know. Like, uh, my body just shut down. I mean, I got really, really sick. And, you know, I, the, I remember, you know, the sheriffs, I tattoo all the sheriffs, you know, all the years of me being in the county and stuff like that. I knew all these guys, and they would all come to me for tattoos. Mm-hmm. And when I'm in the county jail, I paint murals in there, you know. So all those deputies know me, you know. So I remember when they found out that I was in jail, they went to the, you know, intake where you first come in, and they went and got me, you know. But when they got me, I was laying on the floor with my face at the underneath the door trying to get fresh air because I couldn't breathe in there and I wow. thought I was going to die, you know? Jeez. And they're like, they're like, dude, Negretti, what are you doing on the floor, dude? Come here. And they're like, come on, we're going to take you up uh, to a, a special dorm where they keep the paisas. Paisas are the undocumented workers. Oh, okay. And yeah. yeah and who do all the work in the county jail. They put them in a special dorm, and they do all the work. Everybody else is locked down. They don't trust anybody else. Huh. But but uh, those uh, undocumented workers, you know, the, we call them paisas, which means friend in Spanish. Right. So, so they put me in a dorm with them because that way they could watch me. But when we tried to walk to that dorm, I couldn't take more than three steps. And they're like, dude, what is wrong with you, man? And I'm like... I think it's my asthma. I lied to them, told them I had asthma. And they're like, they ended up getting a wheelchair to, to, because I couldn't even walk three or four steps, you know? And then once, once I was in that, you know, in that dorm, you know, I couldn't sleep. Um, I couldn't breathe, you know? And I, and here's all these spices in there, all these youngsters, and they're like having fun and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my God, look, Look what I did to myself. I was certain that I was going to die in there. 
was like, I did this to myself, you know, and I was miserable. And so then I had a heart attack. Oh, shit. So, you know, and I remember keep the, coming. the yeah. doctor telling that it's keep coming. But I remember when I went to see the doctor, you know, when they took me down there, he's in heart failure, you know, and he's like, you know, I just don't see how you can go on without a heart transplant, you know. And I was just, you know, I just don't see how they're going to give me a parole gangster a yeah. heart transplant, you know. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, Generally, you got to be clean for that kind of stuff, right? They're not going to waste an organ on a drug addict or alcohol. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, yeah, they're not going to waste an organ on a drug addict. Exactly. You have to you have to prove that uh, if, if you have a history, yeah. then you have to prove that you're clean for a year. Yeah. You know, my sister would do that. Like she was on a liver thing, and she couldn't get one until you're a year. Like, and that makes total sense. Like they're not going to waste a perfectly good organ on <laughs> right on one of us. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. And, you know, and I knew that. So he's telling me I can't go on without a heart transplant, and I know I'm not going to get one. Not mm. and especially in jail. You know, they got good people out there that need right, right. heart tra- transplant. There's only so many hearts going around. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a limited, it's limited supply. Yeah. <laughs> limited supply so you know but uh so the general hospital that's uh, the county hospital there in la uh it's it's right next to the jail well near the jail but they have the the 13th floor is where they put you know guys from the jail so hmm. so i had the heart attack and they took me to that hospital and i was there for about two weeks and i got a little bit better you know and they had me on all kinds of drugs I felt like it kind of saved my life that I went into the hospital. But anyway, so I was taking like 15 different pills, you know. And uh, they said, okay, you can go back to the jail, but you had to be in a wheelchair. So they took me back to the jail hospital in the wheelchair. And, of course, my friends, the sheriffs, they came and got me out of there, took me back to the Paisas dorm. But they took good care of me. They'd bring me food, hmm. you know, like because uh, that food that in the that jail food isn't even food, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, I don't know what this stuff is, and we're eating. But anyways, so, so, uh, but I, I didn't feel really any better, and then I had my second heart attack. Jeez. And you know, I went back to the hospital, again, kind of repeated the whole process, got back to the jail, but I just didn't feel any better. I felt like I was getting worse, and I was so skinny, and I had no color in my face. And I remember I talked to my son on the phone. And I tell him, dude, I don't want you to come visit me because I don't want you to have to go through all this hassle. I'll be out soon enough. Don't worry. I just didn't want anybody to see me the mm-hmm. way I was, you know, and because I didn't want him to worry. Right. And um, but anyways, then I started really thinking, you know, when I was a kid and when I was in college also, I remember the whole Bible story of uh, this king who uh, was going to die and his time was up. Because a prophet came to him and told him, I have a message from God. You know, you sinned. Your time is up. Prepare because you are going to die. Mm. And uh, that king was so perplexed that he decided to go over the head of the prophet and talk to God himself. And uh, because of his faith in doing that, uh, God gave him 15 more years, mm. which is a nice little spread. <laughs> yeah, you can work with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 15 years, that's good, you know, so, you know, I remember that story, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to talk to God, now, I mean, I have religious background, and, you know, uh, yeah, I went to done, that, done the whole Bible thing, for sure, right, but I felt different about this, 
I wasn't going to get on my hands and knees and, you know, say this dear Heavenly Father, I come before you. You know, it's just like, I'm going to talk to God mm. from my heart and believe that I'm talking to him, you know. And, you know, I, you know, I believe that I had to have faith, you know. And uh, so I remember in my book, we call it uh, Jacob's Ladder. Mm. I, I had to go up these two flights of stairs, like six stairs each, you know, to get to the second floor to a shower room. It was the only place where I could be alone, you know. Mm. And it took me like a half an hour to get up those stairs because I would just take one step and I had mm. to pull myself on the rail, you know. And uh, and once I got up there, I said, God, hear me, please. I'm not going to make any promises because every promise that I've ever made, I've broken. All I'm asking you for is a little more time. That's all. A little more time so I won't die in this wretched county jail, so that I could have a chance to redeem myself, to be an example to my older son. And uh, and I was like, that's all I ask, Lord God. That's all I ask. And and that was it. And at the time, I remember I, I felt better. I felt like, ah, oh, you know, like mm-hmm. I talked, I felt like I talked to God, you know? Yeah. It was some, something different about that prayer. And that night I had it really rough. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't sleep at all. I just couldn't breathe. I felt like I was getting really worse. And by the time in the morning I had another heart attack. Wow. So number three. So number three. Within like how long a period? Like, yeah, like three weeks. Uh uh so within a month and a half or so wow. because I'd be in the hospital for a couple of weeks, yeah. then yeah. back of the jail. Yeah. So it was a month and a half, two months, and they uh they kept put my court date off because of medical yeah you know so you can get so many extensions because of your medical condition and so now so this could have been this was like uh you know one of those you know those stamp like a rubber stamp you know like request denied bam (laughs) thank you god you know (laughs) i get it i get it you know thanks for your consideration on this but, you know, I really felt different when I was in the, in the ambulance because it's the same ambulance drivers that take people from the jail to the hospital, you know. They're, they're like, on duty there at the jail. So this is already my third time them taking me, and um, so I kind of already knew them. And I remember <laughs> the one ambulance driver was saying, he goes, don't you ever hold back. You have a legitimate reason, you know, to be in this ambulance because a lot of people with fake injuries so they can go to right, the hospital right. and get away from the jail. So, but I felt really different. Like that whole time that I was in there, I thought I was going to die. I was certain I was going to mm. die. And uh, and now all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to live. Mm. In the middle of this thing, they're trying to find a vein for the IV. They're giving me that nitroglycerin or whatever under my mouth. Mm. You know, um, and I told that ambulance driver, I go, dude, you know what? You're cool. I tell you what, when I get out, I want you to go to Shamrock Tattoo, and I'm going to give you a free tattoo. That's funny. And he's like, yeah, great. That sounds great. I'll be there, you know. Anyways, though, so when I got back, I was there for three weeks. But I, I started getting better and better until the doctor came and said, you know what? Uh, these meds that we have you on now are really working good. They're holding you stable. We're going to send you back to the jail. So like clockwork, they send me back in a wheelchair. My sheriff buddies get me and put me in the Paisa dorm. 
And then with each passing day, I felt better and better. Now, before I was feeling worse and worse, you know, Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden I could lay back and lay down and I could sleep, you know, and I was walking around and I was gaining a little weight. I was eating better, you know, and I was looking at my face. I was getting color back on my skin. And then, you know, I was even going to the roof, you know, because that's where they had activities. And I shot a couple baskets and even started doing push-ups, you know. So I was feeling like really better. And uh, so every Tuesday, they would take me over to the hospital and then they would examine me. And that would be once a week, every Tuesday. And so I would go every Tuesday and the doctor would examine me. So I was there on the Tuesday and then the doctor saying, well, you really look better, you know, and stuff. And I go, yeah, well, when I was doing push-ups, and he goes, whoa, wait, you do push-ups? And I go, yeah, I've been doing push-ups. And I told him I even play a little basketball, you know. And he's like, wow, you know what? He goes, I'm going to have you come back, and we're going to redo all these tests, you know, the echogram and the other one where they shoot the dye in your spot. And uh, so I was fine. So the next week I went back to the hospital. They redid all those tests. Another week went by, and I went back to the hospital again. But this time, there was a little group of doctors and interns there, you know. And each one took turns listening to my heart. And uh, and then, you know, so then when they all left, uh, the main doctor, he tells me, yeah, well, you have to excuse all my colleagues. We've all heard of, you know, people's hearts repairing themselves. But most of us had never seen it. Wow. And, uh, so it was like a miracle. A miracle. And You're I told the doctor, Freddie. I'm, I told the doctor, I was like, you know what? I think God, yeah, you know, healed my heart yeah. and gave me more time, you know? And he goes, I think your body healed your heart and your heart gave you more time. Yeah. And I was like, whatever, dude. Yeah, Tato right. potato, man. However I'm that still works. here. Let's That's do funny. this. So was that, you, was that your, uh, that was your bottom? You just told us the story where you hit your bottom and asked God for help. Yes. That's awesome. And, and. So this has already been 11 years now, so... Wow. You know... And was that your last was, using? You didn't use anymore, didn't drink anymore? That was it? That was it. Yeah. And the thing is, is that for, you know, and I know that, that it's always dangerous to say stuff like this, but yeah. at the time, uh, you know, when I prayed and I was recovering, I knew in my heart that I was never going to use again. Yeah. I, I just had to find out how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and did you ever so, go into like AA or NA or anything after all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you did uh, all. Let that. me explain what happened. So yeah. So, uh, you know, while this, you know, like so, another layer of the story. While this is happening, you know, the captain of the jail wanted me to paint, you know, a couple of murals, you know, because I was already feeling healthy again, yeah. and and uh, you know, the sheriffs all said we're the ones that nurse Negretti back to health, you know, so. They were all cool. So the captain of that part of the jail wanted a couple of murals painted. And so I painted those murals for him. Meanwhile, when I was going to court, my uh, public defender was telling me, dude, you have to plead guilty because the deal they're offering you is two years in prison. If you don't take that two years, they're going to give you four years. Hmm. If you don't take the two years, you have no case. You were on parole. They had every right to search you. You absolutely have no defense. And I was going, well, I want to go into rehab. I think they'll send me to a rehab. She goes, no, they won't. The prosecutor already said, no, the best thing they'll give you is the two years. Hmm. So 
So I remember I told her, you know what? Just give me two more weeks. Just give me an extension for two more weeks. And I told her, what if I get a letter from a sergeant at the jail saying that I should go into rehab? And she goes, they don't do that. They do not write reference letters for, for inmates. I go, just give me the extension. She goes, all right. So she got me two more weeks. Meanwhile, after I painted those murals, uh, the captain, he asked me if I would do pinstriping on these little box cars. <laughs> so they did box car, box car racing yeah. for kids, you know, as a community outreach. So I got a chance to kind of meet him a little bit more. And I did this pinstriping on these cars for him. And so then I asked the sergeant, I was like, do you think Captain Holmes said, well, talk to me? She goes, oh, well, he's not the captain anymore. He got promoted to commander of all the jails. Hmm. I was like, oh, whoa. All right. I go, well, do you, do you think he'll talk to me? She goes, well, what do you want to talk to him about? And I go, I, I want to see if he'll write a reference letter for me because I don't think that going to prison is going to help me. What I need is a rehabilitation center, hmm. you know? I need treatment. She goes, ah, uh, uh, you know, she goes, uh, I don't think he'll do that. And I go, well, will you just ask him? She goes, I'll tell you what, and I'll do it. I'll ask him for you. And I go, thank you, thank you, you know. So I didn't hear anything. I went back to court, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, my public defender comes in and says, okay, good. Um, she goes, I don't know what you did, but I saw the judge. He went through the pile of folders and got your case file out and said, this guy's going to rehab. Wow. Damn. <laughs> that's awesome that's amazing yeah so so uh so you ended up in a proper rehab so the other layer of the story is my you know my mother's jewish you know no we didn't know yes that. <laughs> yeah so uh you had a whole new ethnicity yeah. in there you threw that in there <laughs> yeah well you know there there was a big jewish community uh you know of uh immigrants from mm. europe in east l.a oh okay for a minute and but they they didn't really get along with uh, the Hispanic community. They ended up moving out. But what they really really hated is when their daughters would go with the suave Pachuco guys, mm -hmm. you know. So that was my mom. Yeah, she was a rebel. <laughs> yeah. So so anyways, uh, and one of our friends at the tattoo shop, you know, a real close friend of Mark Mahoney's, is uh, that was the head therapist at a Jewish re rehab called Beit Shuba. And, you know, it's not exclusively Jewish, but in order, you know, they're not funded by by government or anything mm -hmm. like that. Right. You know, it's it's a rehab for Jews. But if you're willing to accept Judaism as part part of the recovery, then they'll consider letting, you know, yeah. other people in there, you know. Yeah. But since my mother was Jewish, Your mom's I Jewish. Jewish you know? Right. You're there. Yeah. You don't have to do anything. So, I didn't have to do anything. So... <laughs> I got into Beit Yeshuva. It was the most amazing program. Wow. And I plunged into it, you know, wholeheartedly. Like, And the program is, uh, you know, uh, therapy, psychotherapy, uh, 12 steps, and Judaism. So the Judaism, wow. Judaism I was really happy to, you know, uh, uh, learn about my heritage, you know, uh, that part of my heritage, you know, the, the holidays and and, uh, you know, uh, the traditions, things like that. Yeah, you had none of that growing up. <clears throat> right. And I had never done the steps before. Uh, doing, the, doing the steps, 
was a little bit reminiscent of uh, some of the things I had done, you know, when I converted to Christianity, yeah. you know, yeah. so, so I was able to, to under, understand that and uh, have a clear sight of my higher power and so forth. And, uh, but the thing that helped me the most, I think, was uh, the therapy, because mm-hmm. I had some deep trouble inside of me that I had to deal with, and really, mm-hmm. ha- uh, most of it surrounded, you know, the death of my son. Sure. You know? Absolutely. And, and I, I needed to learn how to forgive myself, mm-hmm. how to own my responsibility in all of it, mm-hmm. you know, how to deal with his death, how to deal with death in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that program was just amazing for me, and it's been almost eleven years now wow, that I've been clean sober. That's cool, and I, I think we were all waiting for that you to deal with that part. You know, when we knew your son had died, yes. yeah, we were like, and that sounded like okay, that's where the peace came because you sound so peaceful today. Obviously, talking about it, and and the transformation must have happened. And just, yeah, having to deal with that, right? Oh, that guilt and oh, that yeah, shame big, and all that stuff. My goodness. A, a, a big transformation. I mean, you know, like uh, when, I, when I was in prison and when I got up, um, I hated when people would bring him up and say, mm-hmm. oh, bro, sorry about your son. Sorry to hear about your son. What happened? I'd be like, yo, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't want to think about him. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to see any pictures. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to be reminded about him in any way. And, and uh, the only time I was... You know, uh, a good distance away from all of that was when I was high, you know. So, um, but now I have pictures all over. I have yeah. fond memory, memories of him as a child and our great times together. But one of the things I do to, to keep myself, you know, walking a straight line is, you know, and I don't know. I don't know that he's looking down on me. I don't mm-hmm. know that. But I live my life and... And I make every choice I make based on this, that he's watching me and and he's proud of me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to live my life to make him proud. You know, even though he's not here physically to see me, I'm going to live my life in a way that would make him proud of his dad. Wow, Mm -hmm. that's good. Living amends, right? Yeah. that's, that's, That's amazing. Yeah. And here you are, man, 11 years later, making him proud. Living right, making, yeah, pursuing yeah, your and, art, and so much changed, you know, for my art. Like before, you know, when I was, you know, always high and stuff, uh, I felt like I had to be high, you know, to to I would do my best work when I was high. Right. Of course, I was strung out on on drugs, but it was mainly the weed, you know. Like before <laughs> right. I do before I do a job, I'd be right. like, and I'd get all, you know, toasted, you know, half baked mm-hmm. or whatever. And uh, and do the job, and I thought that I was doing a better job and mm-hmm. being more creative with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I realized also that in order to look at the pictures of what I had done the next day, I also had to be high <laughs> <laughs> to get your good eyes on, so it all looked. Uh, so I would get high and look at it and say, "Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, that's okay, cool. Yeah. That's but, funny. That's so funny." But what I've learned though now, you know, because. Uh, you know, uh, one of the practices in in uh, Beit Shuva was, uh, you know, focus and meditation. You know, and uh, and breathing exercises. And uh, my my therapist was real big. I I did all his uh, meditation classes. I loved it. Mm. You know, and 
and it helped me to focus on what I was doing, you know, mm -hmm. and and now I'm doing the best work that I've ever done in my life. That's exactly. I, I'm 61 years old, and I've been clean since I was like 50. Yeah. And, you know, usually somebody doesn't start doing their best work at the age of 50, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That, yeah. That's inspiring. That really is inspiring because we talk about that a lot, about yeah. the, 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 the myth, myth that, you know, the great artists have their, they're, they're abusing the substances when they're doing their best work. But yeah. the reality is, I mean, what you can, you can look at your work now and it's just, it's, it really is. It's just absolutely incredible. Um, and, uh, you know, that puts that myth, you know, to bed. Yeah. Um, but, uh, listen, Freddie, I mean, honestly, we could, uh, I'd love to hear story yeah. after story, but I also want you to sell some books. Um, yes. and uh, if you tell them all on here. Uh, I want to point, be able to point people. I got to read your book now. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm like, damn, man, yeah. I missed out. But yes. Well, we're really happy. Uh, let me just say something about my uh, my co-author. Uh, I think. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you, you may have talked to him, Chris. Um, I did. I did. Yeah. Steve Jones, who's a, a, a great writer. And uh, he's also in recovery. He's such a good man. You know, mm -hmm. he's from uh, England. He lives in Austria. And, uh, you know, one of the meetings that I spoke at, uh, which was uh, 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 Criminal Gangsters Anonymous, CGA. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No. It's, that's it's amazing. Can anyone go to that it, or just Criminal Gangsters? Anybody can go to All it, right. just like anybody can go to we NA. you got to go to that, you guys. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, it's know amazing. A, thing. It, a lot of people don't because it's mainly in prison. Yeah. And uh, the, the guys that, that started it, uh, are, are really amazing people, you know, that, and, uh, their, their premise was that, uh, criminal activity is like an addiction yeah. as well, you know? Yeah. You're addicted to the rush of crime. Exactly. Wow. Uh, selling dope or yeah. know, robberies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Whatever the, your thing is. And, you know, um, so a Beit Shuba, uh, allows that that program they take uh, people with criminal problems hmm. and uh and they have that so i was speaking there meanwhile he was working on a project uh with uh, one of one of my friends uh about her grandmother hmm. and uh she had mentioned you know you gotta come hear this guy speak you know uh tonight so he went with her and and um and him and i we went for coffee or something after and we talked and we hit it off really good. And I had mentioned to him, you know, he mentioned he was a writer and I had mentioned that, you know, I, I was really interested in writing a book. I felt like I had a story to tell and I would really love to write a book. I mm -hmm. thought it would help people. And, um, so he made some suggestions to me. He's like, well, I've, you know, I'm, I'm, I write screenplays and stuff like that. Um, I've never, you know, written a book, but you know, I can give you some advice, you know, on how to move forward with mm -hmm. it, you know? And so, and that was cool. So the next day, he was driving to San Francisco for a business meeting, mm. and uh, and he had my number, and he called me up. Something hit him like a ton of bricks, and he called me up and he goes, "You know what, man? I'm going to write this book." Wow! <laughs> he just had and some like, kind of oh, wow. yeah. instant inspiration. Like I need to write this thing. That's so cool. <laughs> just, uh, you know, no, so I... uh, you know, and it, it's it's been a journey for him and I. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Uh, this book was six years in the making, you know, and we had every, you know, uh, 
stumbling block and adverse thing that could happen, you know, happen. And so that's why we know that God helped us in this venture and we're, we're really happy with the outcome. That's great. Congratulations. And, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a, a huge accomplishment to, to, I mean, writing a book is, is a whole nother level of, uh, yeah. of, of challenge and accomplishment. And, uh, and yeah, I, I did. I, I got turned on to you by way of Steve, who is a, a terrific guy. I had a long conversation with him via Skype. Um, and I, thank you, Steve. I think he's listening right now, actually. Um, and, you know, Freddie, it's been uh, an honor and, and humbling to have you on. And um, I, I do want to make sure people know that the book we're talking about, again, is Smile Now, Cry Later, Guns, Gangs, and Tattoos, My Life in Black and Gray. It's available on Amazon. I'll make sure to put the links up. Is there anywhere else you want people to find you uh, online? Uh, well, yeah, my Instagram, you know, they could. Uh, oh, yeah, I Freddy, highly recommend uh, Go, Sorry, go ahead. It's yeah, yeah. Uh, Freddie, F-R-E-D-D-Y underscore Negretti, N-E-G-R-E-T-E. Uh, you could see my work. There's information on my page that uh, if you want to make a, an appointment, you know, so so follow me on the gram. All right. <laughs> All right. Cool. Right Thanks, Freddie. Um, that was right awesome. On. That was yeah, an epic Freddy. tale. You're the man. Thank yeah. you so much, man. Thanks again for having me, man. I enjoyed it. Our pleasure. All right. Have a good night. Okay. Good night. Good See night. you, Freddie. All right. Are we playing ourselves out? Yeah. Hit, hit it. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, Freddie's. He's a force the of nature. Deal. Yeah, he is a force yeah. Of nature. I feel like we that there are thousands of tales. I know, I know. Here. It's like there's got to be. We'll so have to many get more. the book. Yeah, maybe absolutely. we could have a cast. We just go around and read book, read chapters of the book. We'll just like read it. Really like read both. Freddy's book. Yeah. Well, that that'll undo podcast. his sales. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. What's that take? we're gonna do. We're gonna get other people's content and read it on air. Revolution.